were taught that you have to work hard. Um, even I think one of the quotes, posters we had everywhere when I was young from Lenin, it says, work, 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 just things like that. And it's just, it was, I think that that was just kind of ingrained in our brains that you have to work really hard. And the harder you work, the more rewarding it will be, the more value you'll get. Helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers, businesses, and lives. This is the Influence Ecology Podcast. Now, here is your host, John Patterson. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm your host, John Patterson, the co-founder and CEO of Influence Ecology. We're the leading business education in transactional competence. Broadcasting from Ventura County, California, this podcast features case studies, stories, and lessons from business owners, executives, and entrepreneurs who found real solutions, real results, and real satisfaction not only with work, career, and money, but in every area of life. You'll hear how these ambitious professionals found that those who transact powerfully thrive. Raised in the Soviet Union, Kristina Penchenko's view of life was conceived in an environment of hard work, scarce resources, and limited opportunities. Subsequently, her guiding philosophy was that rewards and honor only come through hard work, suffering, and struggle. Now, living in Miami, Florida, her study with Influence Ecology has helped reorient her view of business and life to take full advantage of her valuable time, exceptional talents, and remarkable history. She credits the philosophy of transactionalism as her new guiding philosophy. A virtual CFO, Christina Penchenko offers emerging businesses the financial tools and knowledge to take their business to where it ought to be. Her firm helps small business owners with critical forward-looking financial management tools and consulting that are typically only affordable to large enterprises. In our Guru Talk, you'll hear Influence Ecology co-founders Kirkland Tibbles and I address the history of the philosophy of transactionalism and the relevance of this history to developing your own transactional competence. Here's the interview. Christina, welcome to the Influence Ecology podcast. Thank you, John. I'm really excited to be here. Tell us just a little bit about you and what you offer. Yes, I'll be happy to. What I offer is part-time or virtual CFO services for small businesses. And this is something that is mostly commonly known for big corporations. But a lot of small businesses, they usually have an accountant uh, that's mostly focused on the past. Um, So they come and tell you what happened. We offer something else. We provide with facts an actionable solution to businesses on where they should take their business or where they want to be in the business. What prompted me to start this business is I am actually a big fan of Ayn Rand and objectivism. So I remember when I was reading a a biography about her, somebody asked her what made her become a writer. And she said that she does not want to write about things as they are. She wants to write about things as they ought to be. And that really inspired me um, about actually naming my company that way. It's called Ought to Be. (laughs) We take the company where they should be, not where they are, to help you be successful. Very good. And since you offer virtual CFO services, for those who are listening and are small business owners, who's your perfect customer and how might they find you if they're interested? 
A perfect customer is somebody who actually has been in business for at least two years. Somebody who actually realizes they don't have or they lack the financial skills or strategic skills to take them to where they need to be. We look for customers that earn anywhere between um, half a million to five million in revenue. And somebody who's struggling with basic things such as cash management um, or business planning, as mentioned before, somebody who does not have the skills to, to take it to the next level, but they actually do have the desire to. Your history includes quite a journey. So tell us a little bit about your, where you originate from and how you got here, because I find your story fascinating and how you ended up in Miami <laughs> uh, from where you started. Tell us. Yeah, so I was actually born and raised in Soviet Union and specifically in Siberia, which is very far away from where I'm at right now. <laughs> it's quite colder. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. So uh, we migrated to the United States in 1996. And as you can imagine, being born and grown up in a communist country, in a third world country, things are quite different there than they are here. And really, the, the philosophy, the way I was born into it was survival. I mean, that's all it was about. And actually, I recall when I was young, I was reading a, an American novel about this little girl who ended up somehow in Boston, and she had to encounter hard times and survive and become successful at the end. That became my Bible, truly. I was so inspired by it. And really, everything that I did after that was all about surviving and working hard and achieving great things. As mentioned, when I was still in Soviet Union, the Western world was completely closed to us. For me to actually had access to an American novel was, was a rarity. It's something that was very controlled and you couldn't get access to any of that. Even just to give you another example, this is something that's true more to my mother's generation. When they did show movies, European movies or American movies, the translation was actually not what was really happening. It was some sort of a propaganda. So it was just, it was just so closed. Uh, we couldn't travel. We didn't know what was going on. And even during the Cold War, things were completely communicated to us differently than the rest of the world. And we, we were not aware of what was going on. But in 1996, we had an opportunity to move to the United States, and we did, and I was extremely excited and happy about it, because now I had access to, to, to the world. I had access to become whatever I wanted and to achieve whatever I wanted. I, I had the strength. I, I had the ambition. I just didn't have the opportunity until then. And I just grabbed it with both my hands. I bet. Is there anything else that you'd like to say about the experience growing up there and how we might relate to that. Because I only have movies I've seen or notions and stories and whatnot. But is there anything else you'd want to tell us about that? Sure. As I said, mostly it was all about survival. It was not so much about pursuing your ambitions. And especially for the Russian culture, it's very much black and white. It's yes or no. So it's very straightforward. There is no room for gray area or for anything like that. And it also had to be very creative again, to survive, because it was all about that. In general, it's not easy, but I'm sure it wasn't just for the Soviet Union countries, but any other countries. It's, it's not easy because it makes you feel helpless. You might want things, but you know very well you cannot achieve. So I think you might see often people giving up on their dreams and, and their ambitions because simply they know that the opportunity is not there. I mean, clearly the times have changed now, at least for the Russian Federation. <laughs> But that's always been challenging, 
uh, because you have to give up. Understood. And so do you still have family then in Soviet Union? I do, yes. have a lot of cousins and uncles that still live there. And is the world a very different place for them now? Very much so, yes. Um, there's still, of course, a lot of things that remain the same. If I can imagine, philosophy like this in a country does not change. And when you think about it, Soviet Union collapsed not that long ago. So it does take time to change. But yes, the world is completely different right now for them. And so some of the ethic that you developed there, that anything worth doing is difficult and laborious and requires hard work and so forth. I'm curious about the early development of this particular philosophy and how that came to be. Did some of it come from your early days or did it come in reading this book about the notions of making it in America? How did that come to be? I think it's probably a combination of all of it. In general, from what I recall, we were taught that you have to work hard. Um, even I think one of the quotes, posters we had everywhere when I was young from Lenin, it says, work, 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 things like that. And it's just, it was, I think that that was just kind of ingrained in our brains that you have to work really hard. And the harder you work, the more rewarding it will be, the more value you'll get. I was inspired by that, I guess. And I chose novels or philosophies that confirmed that. Um, so the book that I mentioned earlier was the same thing. It just kind of reiterated that, yes, that is very true. I have to work really hard. And the more I struggle, the more rewarding it will be. And then I think that subconsciously, I just kept choosing that kind of a lifestyle to support my, my theory, to support my philosophy. Of course, like all of us do. So whatever the philosophy is, then we then find evidence for that and we live it out and we play it out in a variety of ways. So for you, struggle and reward are hand in hand. You probably then produced a life of struggle, but at least you felt like you were earning your reward. Is that a good way to say it? Very well said. Yes, that, that's exactly how it was for me. All right. So then you moved to the United States. You were in um, Seattle or Washington in 1996. Then what happened there? So then first just swept away by just the American dream, right? And I had some, some sort of breakdowns initially because the values, again, that we were taught in Soviet Union was, were very much different than they were in America. So it was a hard time to adjust because now I had to question whether the, the values that I was raised with were the, the ones that I wanted to continue keeping. So it was, it was a little bit of a struggle to adjust. But because I was younger, it, you know, eventually I caught up with it and everything was great. And then I remember continuing on the same notion that life is a struggle and struggle is value. I remember listening to Frank Sinatra's song, New York, New York. And uh, there's a phrase there that it says, uh, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. Well, that's all I needed to hear. <laughs> I packed my bags <laughs> <laughs> and sat in my car and I drove to New York to conquer the world. I remember getting to New York and I got out of the car and I was looking around and I was thinking to myself, what was I thinking? Why am I here? <laughs> <laughs> and boy, oh boy, was New York a struggle. I got more than I signed up for or even realized what I was getting myself into. That's probably one of the greatest things I've ever done is move to New York because it has taught me so much more. It has curved my life to where I'm at right now. And I've met a lot of great people. I've, I've been introduced to a lot of different things that I wouldn't have known if I haven't 
stepped outside. But again, I was continuing on the same path, struggle, work hard, be miserable, then I'll get value somehow, sometime down the road. It was just... You'll earn your reward. Exactly. It almost felt like it was never achievable. And the focus was mostly like, just, just make sure you're struggling. Make sure it's hard. But a reward might come sometime down the road. <laughs> Understood. Well, it's worth pausing for a moment. And for all of the people listening, every human being I've ever met has a philosophy for surviving, for making it, and whether or not the philosophy is one of work hard, or it's one of believe it and it shall be, or all the different ways that someone might approach, how am I going to survive life? How am I going to make it? How am I going to accomplish my goals and dreams and so forth? So everyone has their philosophy. And then everyone's philosophy meets reality and it starts to be tested and they wonder, well, is this philosophy valid? Is this view going to work to actually accomplish what I need? So as you move forward and you're now working in the United States, it sounds like you began to work in accounting or financial services or something like that. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes, I've, I've been working for most of my career for big corporations in financial department for over 10 years now. When did you and Influence Ecology connect? You're now in our advanced program, the Mechanics in Practice program. Yeah, I think you're just about near the end of that program, in fact. And you started Influence Ecology when? I started last year, so almost two years now. And when you met us, what were you seeking? Do you remember? Yes, absolutely. Very clearly. So I uh, just to kind of reiterate what you said earlier, of course, I was just following my philosophy. But then I start noticing that things weren't working as I planned. I start questioning for the amount of work and the energy of work that I'm giving all of this, I'm getting very little reward back. Like Something isn't working. Something isn't adding up. I also wanted to find a way to work less and earn more so I can enjoy my life more. Mm -hmm. I also sense that there's something with the communication style or negotiation style. I felt like there's just has to be something more to it than what it is for me and what it was at me at the moment. And there were actually, there are of course a lot of seminars out there, a lot of, a lot of educational programs out there that are being offered to help with somewhat similar things. I've participated a lot in different things, but what it was, it was just pure information. It was just good information, but none of those educational programs has really offered how to apply it, how to make it actually work. It was more like, almost, it's almost like reading a book and then you're on your own. And also there's just so much information out there. How do you know what's right and what's wrong? I just got to a point in life where I felt like my philosophy is no longer serving me well and there has to be something else out there. And I was fortunate enough to actually come across someone who was participating in influence ecology, which I was invited through. And that's how I ended up in, in, in this educational program. If you'd like to know more about influence ecology and our approach, you can register for free 30-day guest access. During this time, you can test drive our interactive webinars, online learning system, and private mentorship. Program participation is by application only, and successful participants earn candidacy into our advanced program tiers. Our members are an international assembly of ambitious professionals, business leaders, and executives from a variety of countries, industries, and cultures. To find out more, you can find a link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. 
That's influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. Or in the U.S. or Canada, you can text the word ambition to 805-262-9008 and we'll send the registration link right to your mobile phone. Again, text the word ambition to 805-262-9008. Also in our show notes, you'll find all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. When you first began, then what did you begin to see about your your own philosophy or your own naivete? A lot of things. <laughs> Where do I begin? <laughs> what was wonderful about this program is I actually got to see myself as if I was looking at myself from a third person or as if I'm looking in the mirror. I start seeing things that I have never seen before. And one of the thing is I've had pride that, and my ego was really big around this, that I get to do things by myself. I am self-reliant. I don't need help. I can do it all by myself. So I was isolating people in the world. And I found out very shortly into the program, that's actually a flawed way of thinking. It's actually quite the opposite. Also, I saw that I didn't have a clear articulated goals. It was more like, I want to be happy or I want to be financially stable. But what does that really mean? I wasn't clear. I thought I was, but I just, my goals were very vague and they were so abstract that it was practically impossible to achieve them. And there was no way for me to actually measure my success again, because I did not, I did not know where I was going. I realized that I was going in all different directions at the same time. And I was accomplishing very little. So you saw some things about your philosophy, about your isolation, about your independence. So then what began to happen? Do you remember at some point things started to change where you started to put things into practice or you started to think about your own business in new ways? What what started to happen there? Actually a lot. What was amazing that Everything that I was learning was not just about my work. It was everywhere. It was all about my life, both personal and business. And I immediately start applying and testing it to my company that I just started. And of course, I saw so many breakdowns and things that they weren't put in place in the right way that would actually not enable me to be successful. So I started applying it to my business immediately and got a lot of quick wins in that respect. Any of them memorable or do they all add up to just a lot of wind? (laughs) I think they all add up to a lot of wind. (laughs) All right, good. So how did you begin to see value then? If before struggle equals value or being value or how I'm going to win is if I make it in New York, I should realize my full potential or something. But, But that got replaced by what? How did you start to see your value later? So the way I start seeing the value later is actually value in my own time and being smart about how I allocate that time in a way that with minimum actual labor on my part that gave me what I wanted. So it went the opposite, actually, going from working 12 hours a day and getting 10% reward to working five hours a day and getting 50% or 70% reward. So I went the opposite. I was able to see what needs to be done in just as less labor as possible. Well, it sounds like then started to see the value of your help, your specialized knowledge, 
what you help people accomplish, what you help them provide, and started to see that being your value, not just your labor. Is that how you began to see that? That is correct. Absolutely. That is actually very well said. When you're trading labor for dollars versus knowledge for dollars, many people have dealt with that particular equation. When you start to trade knowledge for dollars and you start to get paid well for your knowledge, something begins to happen for people in their own experience of their confidence, their self-respect. It starts to impact all kinds of other areas of your life. Is there anything to say about that? Yes, yeah, so you're absolutely right. The confidence and the self-confidence has changed. And with that, I became more selective as far as who I do business with and how I trade my time with them. And it has trickled down everywhere in my life, again, in my personal life and in my business as well. It's just you start looking at things differently. You start valuing things differently because you value yourself more. You don't succumb to that same level, as you've mentioned before, where you just go to the basics, just pure labor, and that's where your value is. Anything you'd like to say about where you are now and perhaps even where you hope to go? Yes, absolutely. And as I mentioned before, I, I feel very fortunate and honored that I've been exposed to this educational program because it has given me so much more than I had ever hoped for. Being part of this ecology, having exposure to you and Kirkland is just such an honor. Why? Because I have never come close or have heard of any philosophy out there that is as complete as this one. And it's not just a philosophy, it's more than that. It's something that you can actually apply to your life, take action on, and actually see results that are so rewarding. And I'll use my favorite quote of Albert Einstein. He said, genius is simple, but not easy. This has been exactly my experience so far, that once you start understanding how things work and what they are and what actions you should or should not be taking. What is value, right? You start to see how everything is very simple. Of course, it's not easy because as you've mentioned, you know, we all have our own philosophies. And in my scenario, I'm 37 years old right now. So for 37 years now, I've been living my life one way. So changing my habits, changing my actions takes practice, deliberate practice. And that's the part that's not easy, but it is so simple that alone motivates me a lot. There's just so much more I want to accomplish. So far, like you've mentioned before, I'm, I'm really happy where I'm at right now, considering where I came from and considering where I'm at is just ex extraordinary. And there's just so much more. Now I can accomplish so much more with this new way of being, of living. So I'm really excited about it. And I still think the sky is the limit. And there's just so much more to do and enjoy life. I can't wait. That's very, very great. Well, we have many people here at Influence Ecology who are beginning to find resources in our global ecology. I've said this on other podcasts, and I've said this in, in some of our programs as well. When we used to have our global conferences, say four or five years ago, much of people attending was about the content of the conference. And nowadays, people attend both for the content, but also because of the group of people that are here. The group of people that are gathered in this global ecology are very, very valuable resources to one another. And you mentioned earlier about the kind of independence 
that you experienced and your pride in working alone and being independent. And therefore you get all the, I did it all myself, that kind of reward and so forth. And for many of us, and I know that you were at the mid-year conference in both Tucson and in Melbourne this year. And in both of those conferences, it was our commitment that people walked away with a rich bit of content, something extraordinarily applicable, relevant, practical, useful, and so forth. But even more than that, that they knew they had everybody in the room to help them. The resources those people offer, the specialized knowledge available to all of those people. I bring that up because we have people who are financial advisors, lawyers, real estate, a whole host of different kinds of organizations and businesses and so forth. I think people would be extremely happy to know that someone like you is available to them and that they could utilize your services uh, as a virtual CFO anywhere in the world. First, I'd love to get your comment on attending the conferences and what it was like to be in that group of resource. It was absolutely phenomenal. First of all, just the conferences, the way they're set up for Influence Ecology, for those that have never participated, they're so unique and so, so one of a kind that, again, they're very practical. And that's why I enjoyed the most. And also, like you've mentioned, you get a chance to meet so many wonderful people. And you get to meet them from all over the world, not just within the United States. So you get access to different cultures. You get access to different specialized knowledge and skills. It's a unique group that it's absolutely amazing to be part of. And again, as you mentioned, you get help. And I've taken that to the fullest this year. I got so much help this year and it just blew my mind how all my life I tried to do it all by myself. So that has been probably the biggest takeaway for me this year in general. But attending both conferences was phenomenal. They were the same and different at the same time. Getting to know people from New Zealand, from Australia has been so rewarding. Uh, I got to know a lot of wonderful people, a lot of smart people. I got to understand them a little bit better and deeper being in their own environment versus them being here in the U.S. It's just been phenomenal, really breathtaking. I'm already signed up to go to uh, New Zealand next year, so definitely doing it again. That's great. Me too. Well, we'll see you in both places this time. So let's just say I'm a small business owner and I might be interested in considering what you offer. When we say you're a solution to a substantial breakdown, the solution that you are, tell us a little bit about that. If I'm a small business owner, how do you help me? Why is it smart to work with you as opposed to a general accountant or bookkeeper? My services are very affordable because it's a part-time base. I could be hired for, for five hours a month or 20 hours a month or one hour a month, depending what the needs are. But the main solution that I bring to small business customers is really an actionable path outlined on where they want to go. So the differences between a regular accountant, which I think is great, I mean, I work very closely with accountants and CPA, is they're most past-oriented. So they tell you what happened but they don't tell you where you want to go. And oftentimes, uh, business owners, they feel uncomfortable talking to their accountant who gets paid, let's say, 40000 a year in salary, talking about, hey, I want to increase my profit by $2 million or $3 million. This is kind of a conversation that 
it's usually challenging to have with an accountant. It's easier to have with somebody who's a, you know, the bigger caliber and an expert in actually helping you get there. So for a fraction of the price, usually I'm able to get small businesses at least 5% in annual revenue more than what they expected. That's fantastic. All right, good. Well, again, we're going to give links to find Christina Panchenko in our podcast show notes and on our website. So anybody listening can go and find out more about her and how to reach her. The last thing that I'd like to do is I often give people the opportunity to say anything they'd like to say, a little soapbox moment. Just being part of this ecology has been absolutely, tremendously fascinating and rewarding for me. And I cannot recommend it enough. This is a philosophy that will help your life take it to a completely different level, both personal, business, whatever it is. It provides tools and how to succeed. And once you have those tools, it's really impossible not to. It becomes so, so simple that it's impossible to not succeed. And whether, as I said, whether it's your business, where it's personal, where it's you work for someone, it doesn't matter. It's just so rewarding. And as mentioned before, it's such an honor to be part of it because I know that this is going to go down in history like Aristotle or, you know, Plato that people read down the road. And, you know, hundreds of years from now on, I'm just so honored to be part of it. And I actually had the privilege to work with both you and Kirkland through this journey. Thank you so very, very much. That's a incredibly kind thing to say. It has been a pleasure to speak with you today. It's been a pleasure to get to know you just a little bit more. I'm sure it'll be the same for all of our customers who already know you and get to know you even a little bit more. So thank you so much for being a guest on the Influence Ecology Podcast. Thank you for having me here. It's been a privilege. As I stated in our Guru Talk, you'll hear co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and I address the history of the philosophy of transactionalism and the relevance of this history to developing transactional competence. Like Ms. Penchenko, you'll find that some beliefs may no longer be empirically sound, but are still largely at play and guiding our actions. Here's the talk. The question I have is what is the relevance of this history to your transactional competence? There's a few things we want to show here. First of all is we want to show how the term transaction evolved with science and theories throughout time, and it did. That'll become clear as we move through each of the studies. It's been observable to me that in working with people, that some of the movements and existential theories that arose in the works of Galileo or Newton or many of the other people that we'll study here, that many of these movements or theories or ideas and so forth they rose to popularity and became current-driven notions, beliefs, and so forth. But they may not be retired, or it may not have left the narrative. It may not have left the building. So it's still there as something you can go think or study and so forth. However, it may no longer be relevant to satisfy your work and action in pursuit of your aims. So it's the commitment that we have that challenging some of these notions, presenting some of these movements and existential theories will actually allow you to think accurately, will begin to move you in ways to go about the satisfaction of your conditions of life in ways that you hadn't yet considered. That may put to rest certain things that have been of confusion and so forth. Additionally, 
it matters to understand the history of transactionalism because these movements, these theories, and so forth arise in accordance with new scientific findings. And scientific findings or facts or theories and the like have the potentiality to alter our existential thinking. As I said a little bit earlier, facts, if you're rational, should or ought to change your beliefs. Beliefs don't change the facts. So we're going to take a look at this from a more of a scientific point of view than from some other point of view. And science has the potentiality to alter the way that we think. Finally, because we are co-constitutive reciprocal beings in and born of the environment as a continuum. What's a continuum? A continuous sequence in which adjacent elements are not perceptibly different from each other. So that's a continuum. I didn't wake up this morning and think, oh, I am now an old man. Or, oh, I am now an adolescent. There are certain things that move so slowly and imperceptibly that they exist in the continuum all at one time. And so understanding that you live in an environment, a, a continuum, matters so that you can think accurately about all that which is offered within the continuum. I was thinking about the timeline of the Earth today, Kirkland, and I was thinking about how easy it is to no longer accept the fact that dinosaurs exist because we have an enormous amount of evidence that in the continuum of the existence of Earth, there is no evidence that those dinosaurs still exist. However, there are, uh, as an analogy, theories and ideas and concepts that still exist by virtue of the human storytelling, of the human narrative. So we live in a continuum, and we want to begin to point to the history so that you could recognize where you are in the history, where you've been in the history, and perhaps even where you're headed. As I said before, this is a little bit on science. Facts, if you're rational, should change your belief. Beliefs don't change the facts. It's a quote by Richard Dawkins. It says, I hope that every student who ever goes to university at one point in their life has the opportunity to have something that is at the heart of their being, something so central to their being that if they lose it, they won't feel that they're human anymore to be proved wrong. Because that's the liberation that science provides, the realization that to assume the truth, to assume the answer before you ask the questions leads you nowhere. And it is the case with many of our students in speaking with them that we can hear that they are related to philosophical beliefs, past-based beliefs that are no longer relevant or perhaps not even relevant to their own aims. And again, we hope to distinguish them to make the distinction more evident. As an example here um, on science, it was once a fact that that the world was flat. People believed that the planets and the sun orbited the Earth. For the earth was believed to be the center of the universe, and the attempt to offer a different view was considered hearsay. Then empirical evidence altered the belief, and this lecture will attempt to show that some beliefs may no longer be empirically sound, but are still largely at play in the marketplace. My invitation is to use this lecture to inquire about this for yourself. I really do want to invite you to consider that some of the fundamental ways you're oriented around the satisfaction of your conditions of life may no longer be relevant. And Kirkland, I want to give you the opportunity to say anything here before I move on, if you'd like to, because I think it's just a real important point of this study in general. I just got to 
text and I'll just I'll just read it and what I what I'm getting is that transaction isn't that tit for tat you talk about. Mm. That it's some kind of objective. I got mine and I'm transacting without with some kind of uh, self interest that doesn't take into effect everything that occurred, every antecedent element, aspect, fact, fiction, story, everything that occurred leading into this moment in time and everything that is in the moment and will follow. That is truly a holistic view that you cannot escape. And there is no question in my mind that the narrative that we are the center of the universe are alive and well in our marketplace today. They absolutely are. You can tell by the ethic and the, the principles that much of the planet and the people on the planet live by is that human beings have some kind of dominion over this existent environment. We aren't here to, to preach one way or the other in terms of our responsibility for Mother Earth. However, we are in a dance with our environment at all times. And we tend to still come from that we have dominion. So these narratives that we live in, this thing called the current, which we define as the predominant narrative of any particular ecology, this current we live in is given by notions from the past a long time ago. These narratives permeate today, and they have altered, and they've been edited, and they've been reviewed, and they have been moved as human beings will move them to their own interests, but they live today. And so it's useful right now in this study to begin to look at where some of our most dominant narratives come from and what it is going to take to benefit ourselves and those with whom we transact, those for whom we care, and how those we ought to care for, where else those people may be. What's possible in a world where we look to transact rather than to live in an objective, I got mine, you get yours kind of existence? And so we're going to challenge these notions, these notions of the past. In our next episode, we interview Wesley Pingleton, the co-founder of Full Circle Wealth in Dallas, Texas, who learned a great lesson about the agreements we make with ourselves. I'm a financial planner. I had the finances right. Our overhead was really low. We were one big happy family of four. And within two years, we had two more kids. So with that, I had this really successful business that was requiring a lot more labor than I thought it was going to require. I had this growing family that I wanted to be influential and be with my kids. What I found was I had these really great ambitions as a business owner. I had these really great ambitions as a father, and I really wasn't doing either well. And that bothered me. If you enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you share it with others. You can share it from our website at influenceecology.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or any place you get your podcasts. If you haven't offered a rating or review, I ask that you take a moment, go to iTunes, and let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to another great episode of the Influence Ecology Podcast. I'm your host, John Patterson. I'd like to thank Christina Penchenko for a great interview. In our show notes, you'll find links to connect with her and all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. The podcast is made possible by the brilliant work of the Influence Ecology staff, mentors, and members around the world. We're grateful for co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and his 30-plus years of specialized study and practice that make all this possible. 
episode producer, editor, and music supervisor, Jason Kelly. I'd also like to thank Tyson Crandall and Carol Gregory for their contributions. 